You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. Alison, how are you? I'm very, very well, thank you, Valerie. I'm just sitting here. I'm not freezing for a change, which is lovely, and just Procrasty Pup is out the back doing his Procrasty Pup thing, so I'm ready to talk. Well, what have you been up to this week? Oh, Val, I've been writing because what else do I do at this point in my life? It's just fairly busy. But, you know, I have been um, also, apart from finishing up um, the first draft of uh, the third book in the Mapmaker series, I have also been outlining a potential books four, five and six. Wow. Yeah, so that's exciting. Well, I'm just, you know, like I I realised as I come to the end of book three how incredibly sad I am. (laughs) I am to be leaving these characters that have sort of like been so much in my head for the last couple of years. And so I realise that there's an opportunity there for them to have another epic adventure. Wow. And so I have... um, I have just been outlining those ideas. I mean, they may not ever, it may never happen, but I'm having an enormously good time just putting it, you know, into action. Wow. Epic, um, epic trilogy. How do you, how do you say when there's six books? Series. Yeah, well. (laughs) Don't we just go to series at that point? Fair enough. I've just, you know what, I've been cheating a little bit. I've just been calling it a series right from the start. I think I've just been hoping that, you know, hoping against hope that maybe it will turn out to be, um, to be more than three because I really I really don't want to let them go at this I can, point. I can just see the movies and the <laughs> miniseries just all rolling out. Well, my son has already begun filming the movie on his iPad, so <laughs> we can um, we can look forward to that in the future. <laughs> Exciting. Exactly. And what about you? What are you up to? Oh, what have I been up to? So this week we've been doing a lot of preparation for a whole lot of students who are going to um, Paris for our Writing in Paris program and also to Oxford, um, as in Oxford University, to our Writing in Oxford uh, program. They're not actually going to write, um, you know, study in the university. Not to uni. (laughs) You're not signing them up. No, no, no. They're going to Oxford and surrounds and kind of going to, you know, Hogwarts and Stonehenge and the Cotswolds and Shakespeare's birthplace and all of that sort of stuff. So it's all very exciting because the students themselves are really excited. Well, I'm excited and I'm not even going. I wish I was. (laughs) (laughs) So that's always a highlight of our year because they come back, um, you know, loving it. So uh, very exciting. But the other exciting thing for me anyway (laughs) that's been happening this week is um, I have a new app on my iPad. I know that we don't usually lead with a story on an app, but it's an app that's been developed by Tom Hanks. Now, not many people know that, but although we may have mentioned it on this podcast before because of my obsession with typewriters, but Tom Hanks has an obsession with typewriters and he has very many, you know, retro typewriters, vintage typewriters. He collects typewriters. So he decided to create this app called the Hanks 
app, which is <laughs> H-A-N-X, you know, to be really cool. We're 3.0 about it. Yeah. Uh, and um, what it is, is that you put it on your iPad and when you, it's fantastic, actually. I've been obsessed with it. And you, it types just like an old-fashioned typewriter. So you can hear the keys hit you know, the paper as if you would, as if it was a typewriter. When you do your carriage return, it goes across the screen (laughs) like an actual typewriter. And the vision on your actual iPad is, you know, like like you're looking at the top bit of a typewriter and out come your words, you know, um, in in whatever you know typewriter font, and do they actually, go on the on the paper on the screen? It goes on a pa- piece of paper on the screen. Oh, that's and crazy! And the thing is, you can save it, and you can then email a PDF of that piece of paper to yourself or whoever. <laughs> it's it's awesome. I've been obsessed. I mean, mainly I've just been typing the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy <laughs> dog, just because I want to hear the sound. Oh, that's so funny. So, considering that yesterday I was about to, you know, I was texting the uh, vintage typewriter lady that I've, oh. supplier that I've right. come to know, texting her about a, um, uh, a, a vintage, a, a retro typewriter, which is a, t- around $250, this iPad app is free. <laughs> <laughs> So it might save me a lot of money. It might save you a lot of money. And I see that while the app is free, you can actually purchase different typewriters within the app so that you can have the typewriter of your choice. That's right. So if you want your basic typewriter that's just sort of black, but if you want a blue typewriter or whatever, yeah, you can um, purchase different different types of typewriters. And I'm sure they're going to add um, different styles of typewriters so you can be typing on a Corona or an Olivetti or a whatever maybe in the future. Isn't it funny? Like here we are with all this technology at our fingertips and what people are hankering, hankering like that, what yeah. people are hankering for. I see what you did there. See what I did there. Um, is, is you know, what they had 30, 40, 50 years ago. I know. Interesting. Retro. See, I had to type on a manual typewriter when I first started work and, uh, you know, because that's how old I am. <laughs> um, and so I would never go back to it. Okay. And I don't, I don't even, I mean, I do have a couple of vintage old typewriters, um, which, are, you know, are lovely things to have in my house, but I would never go back to using one again. But the beauty of this app is that you, if you have, don't have to. Exactly. You have oh, the I wonders know. of technology. You can backspace, you can insert and cut and paste, but you still get that feeling and that noise like you're, you know, hemming away, pinning your next novel. Uh, see, I can't, I have to say, I can't give up my Logitech keyboard cover. I'm in love with it. It's the best thing I ever bought for my iPad. I'm so happy with it. I just, I'm sorry, Tom. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it works with your Logitech keyboard cover. Well, I don't. Okay. (laughs) That's the beauty of it. I can't get my head around that, Val. That's too hard. (laughs) I've been using it with my Logitech iPad keyboard cover. Okay. All right. See what, you you use it for the team. I will. I'll just stick with what I got. Okay. (laughs) That's my excitement for the week. But my excitement for the week has been tempered by my disappointment of the week. When um, I, uh, you know, I get sent a lot of books and there are some books that I've been really looking forward to because I know that they've been coming out. Perhaps I know that the author or, you know, I really respect the author and I'm waiting for their next book. And one landed across my desk this week and it was highly anticipated by me because I knew this book was coming out and I wanted to read it. Uh, So it was highly anticipated and I opened the package and I put the book in front of me and I just looked at it and I 
I have to say my heart fell. Oh. And um yeah. Oh. Um because of the cover. Oh. I was so disappointed in what I felt was a really, you know, slack effort by the publishers on the cover and um I I, I you know, I I ha- I told them so as well because oh. <laughs> I just thought they're just doing themselves and the author a disservice. Oh. And um, it it just goes to show, doesn't it? Because when you sign your contract with a publisher and if you're a first-time author, you don't always have a lot of say. And um, No, you don't. Yeah, and you can argue and you can push and all of that, but ultimately – it uh, often when you're a first-time author, it is um, out of your control. Hopefully, you you are in sync with your publisher and you both actually love the cover, but that is not always the case. And I think that you know, once you get to um, you know beyond your first publication, I personally would probably be negotiating into the contract that you have you know right of veto or you can you know or something like that so you have more input into the cover because this was this cover was so disappointing that I've been looking forward to read this book I can't actually open it oh haven't really read it. yep so you dislike it that much yeah wow. I will no doubt read it when I get over this <laughs> it does it does very much color how you feel about the I mean the cover is so important I mean it, you know it's that whole you can't judge a book by its cover thing mm. is you know like really we shouldn't in many ways like as you say this is an anticipated book you you know it's probably going to be a very good book and a good reference and all that sort of stuff um and yet you come to it now with a certain sense of you know sourness mm. because you are so disappointed by the cover and i find it really interesting because it you know what what some people think makes a good cover it can can be Subjective, shall we say? Yes, and clearly yeah. I need to take a moment and breathe. You do. And- <laughs> probably so, just a small, just a breath, a deep breath of some description would probably help a great deal here. So maybe we should move on to something you want to talk about, so that I can. Okay, you just you just have a little think. Now I am going to talk about a blog post that was sent to me by the delightful Kelly Exeter, um, who is is very much a, a positive. Uh, she writes a lot of positive, positive motivational posts, which is great. But she's sent me a post um, written by an author called Tara Sophia Moore. And what it is basically, it's called Stolen Time. And it's based on a quote from the writer Elizabeth Gilbert. And the quote is, traditionally, women have always made their art out of stolen materials and stolen time. And I think this goes a little bit towards what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago about how you don't find time to write novels, you have to make time. And often for women in particular, and I'm, I'm only saying, you know, often because, you know, there are men who have to do this as well. It's a matter of squeezing it in around family and work and book week costumes. And I say that because they're fresh on my mind and, you know, muffins for the school fade and the 8 million things that you have to do. And the interesting thing about this post is that when Tara Sophia Moore read this particular post, they made that, that quote from Elizabeth Gilbert, it made a huge difference in her life because she thought that the fact that she was writing in bits of stolen time was a problem, Mm. that somehow this wasn't real writing, that this was not how, you know, people who were serious writers wrote. And then 
reading that, she realized that in actual fact, she is just part of a legacy because all the way back, as far as it goes, you know, generally speaking, women are controlling the fadmin, the family admin, <laughs> and they are dealing with the children and they are making the lunches and they are squeezing things in around. And it's just the way, and you know, it, it obviously equality is, is becoming much more and there are more men taking on those roles too. But it's generally speaking, for most of the women I know, that is still the reality and we are still squeezing it in. And she thought it was a problem. So when she read that, it suddenly made her realise that as far as it went, she was actually part of a great tradition and it really made her think differently about how she treated that time. And I think that that's a great thing because if you're thinking that you have to have hours and hours of uninterrupted time to write, you're never going to do it. So the fact that she can look at it as a positive thing, that she's scribbling Mm. bits of notes wherever she can, at least she's writing. And I think, um, so, you know, if you're someone who is struggling with that notion that you've, you know, like that what you're doing is not actual real writing, it's probably worth reading the post and having a little, you know, think about that too. And I do, I love the quote. I mean, I think it's really very true. Stolen materials and stolen time. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. But yeah. you know what? I mean, if Elizabeth Gilbert can create what she can create out of stolen time, hey, give me more stolen time. Exactly. No let's do. Let's be stealing really. minutes left, right and centre. Exactly. <laughs> and also, the thing is, your writing is what you think it is. And if you yeah. think it's going to be substandard because you're writing, you know, in between bits and pieces yeah. here and there, then it is yeah. going to yeah. be. But if you're going to put all of your heart in it, even if it's in five minutes while you're waiting in the car for those, you know, to, to pick up the kids, then yeah. you're putting your heart in it. So it's it's what you make out, what it, it's, it's what you make it out to be. Yeah, your perception of it is important. Exactly. Make it important. So I came across this. I quite, occasionally I, I go to this blog. Um, <clears throat> it's called the Australian News Agency blog, and it's just written by this news agent about running news agency. Oh yes. And I remember actually coming across it a few years ago, thinking, "How odd!" Um, and you know, there weren't that many readers, but it, it's he's grown his readership. And while it's not necessarily, you know, going to light the entire world on fire because it's specifically about issues affecting Australia's news agents. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's a cute I, – I enjoy it basically because my entire high school um, part-time job was in a news agent. Was it? Yes. Wow, so, you had a great job. I did because I got to read every single magazine. I know. Free. That's what I'm thinking. That's fantastic. Yes, and the owners didn't mind at all. They were more than happy for me to, you know, read all the magazines for free or, or take it home overnight and bring it back uncreased or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> uncreased. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So that was um, – I came across this post that he wrote about, um, you know, there's this de- – and that started this debate in the comments about whether it's okay to let people stand there or sit there in your newsagent and browse through and read the magazines. Because, mm. you know, I've been to some news agencies. I was in the city in, in Sydney not that long ago where I started looking just – I didn't even open it. I just looked at the – pulled it out of its shelf and started reading the cover lines, which I always do because I'm obsessed with the magazines. And the news agent, it was kind of, kind of like a kiosk, kind of went, no reading, no reading, no reading. Oh. So I immediately just put it back and left. But, I mean, I buy magazines like they're going out of fashion. So chances are I would have bought that magazine if something on the cover caught my eye. Mm. But he was very much no reading, no reading. What are your thoughts? Should should people be allowed to, you know, sit there and read magazines or 
Or I, they, you well, know, I generally way? find that the bigger the news agency, the more they welcome you. Like, I, well, I don't call it reading per se, I call it browsing. Mm. And so I will pick up several magazines, have a little flick, read, you know, like maybe read an article just to see. Like I don't necessarily, because I'm often looking for new magazines. I don't mm. like buying the same stuff all the time and I'm often looking for a new experience. And I'm not going to buy something that I haven't had a chance to flick through. I need to be able to see what I'm getting. I need to feel it. I like to see what the advertising's like. Mm. I, like to, I, I don't want to be buying something that's 90% ads because, you know, there are a lot of sort of advertorial custom yes. pubs out there masquerading as real ones. Um, so I just basically, yeah, I, I like to see. Like our, our local news agency here is fantastic. It's for a smallish town. It's a great big news agency and um, they get a huge array of things in and they're more than happy for people to have a little flick through. The only thing that I find is that you tend to clutter up the aisles a bit so yeah. you have cranky old ladies pushing past you wedging <laughs> their umbrellas in your back but apart from that um, but yeah and I, I remember I wrote one t- one time I wrote on my Facebook page that I had been you know browsing at the magazine browsing I'd, all I said was I was browsing at the news agency um, which magazine would you like to write for and I was t- taken to task Mm. by a commenter who told me that if I wanted to write for magazines, then I needed to buy them, not just browse. And I, as I pointed out, I said, you know, I bought four magazines Mm. that day Mm. and I had probably browsed a dozen, Mm. but I bought four. Mm. And, you know, like, so let's, let's, you know, put our outrage pants away just for five minutes. Pull your head in. However, I will say... That if you do want to write for magazines, you do need to buy them. You need to support the industry um, that you want to work in. That's, mm. you know, that's it. It's the same with Australian books. If you want to write Australian novels, you need to buy Australian novels. Yeah, I, I agree, <laughs> although for different reasons. For different I, reasons. I, I think that if you – I mean, I don't think they should be buying the magazines just on a principle of supporting Australian magazines. I think they should be buying magazines because they need to be buying them to read them in order to pitch properly. Well, that's right, that too. But I do think you also – like it's uh, there's an extraordinary number of people out there that want to be writers who aren't – uh, readers who aren't yeah. buying books and who yeah. are, and, and it's it's incredible it's very very hard to think that you're going to slide into an industry when you you're not part of it you have exactly. to be part of it I was talking to about I don't know about maybe ten people um, uh, about writing for magazines and I said and one of them admitted that they don't even read magazines I said but you want to write for magazines she said yes and I said well you how can you write for magazines if you're not re-? and I, reading them and I said okay I want a show of hands. Who reads magazines? And two people put their <gasps> hand up. And out of out of ten people who wanted to write for magazines, and I just said to the I I said to all of them, well, I know which two of you are going to get published first, because it's not going to be the eight who don't buy magazines. No, that's I find that extraordinary. How do they even know who they're going to pitch? Oh, Where I, are they going to send their stories? I shake my head. Oh, I shake my head as well. <laughs> Listen to us. We sound like we're eighty four. <laughs> So you have an interesting link about how to submit your writing to literary magazines, speaking of different kind of magazines. Yeah, that's right. I thought um, just for the for our sort of writing craft sort of uh, book this week, I thought this would be quite an interesting one because I know that one of the things that literary um, writers often say is it's very difficult for them to um, build their platform and write that, you know, to, to promote their work and stuff like that. And it, it is true that it's, it's a very difficult market. Um, and, you know, like what do they, what do I blog about and all that sort of stuff. But one thing that 
that um, is a tried and true method for gaining the attention of publishers if you write this style of of work, literary work, um, is through literary magazines, short stories um, for literary magazines. And they are, it's a very, very competitive area um, in the sense that, you know, like there's there are a lot more of them now than there used to be because there's, there's, there's new ones all the time in the digital space. Um, but obviously, um, and literary journals, uh, they, 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 you can still get them in print, various ones, but they're not as many as there used to be. Um, but this is just basically a, a complete and thorough guide for anyone who's interested in having a short story or a poem, because that's another thing that, that can be very difficult to find a publishing space for. Yes in a literary magazine. So it's um, it basically takes you through step by step from finding a suitable publication yeah. um, and it gives you um, a list uh, of uh, resources of how to find them. Um, they mention um, Duotrop's Digest, which is a comprehensive list, searchable database of over 2,000 different literary magazines. Um, because, of course, your literary work does it can, can be submitted to um, international magazines as well. It doesn't yeah. necessarily just have to be Australian. So it's a great... Um, a great um, link to that to have a look for a suitable publication and then step two of course is to read and follow the guidelines mm. and that's something that um, that goes across any type of submission if there are guidelines available read them and make sure that what you're sending fits there because otherwise you're just going to get a form rejection letter yep. and you'll be wondering why um, and then it talks you through sort of the different different types of rights um, so that you ha understand what you're giving away if you send your story to a particular publication talks about how to format your work and um, goes on to sort of talk about you know things that you should think about um, down the track like don't give up it can be <laughs> discouraging um, and learn to take criticism. If somebody offers you feedback, that is gold because mostly what yeah. you will get is a thanks but no thanks. If someone takes the trouble to say, if you just did X, Y or Z, this would be fantastic, yeah. then then think about doing X, Y and Z. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, it's a great little post. It's a very, very succinct guide and I think it's worth um, – put, we'll put the link in the show notes for a look. Useful post. I think one of the most um, useful parts about it is actually to get you thinking about the rights because when you submit to a literary magazine, you're one of several short stories or whatever yeah. that's going to go in an anthology or whatever you know in the magazine however sometimes it is unclear about the rights if you submit it to that publication are you then able to submit it to another publication so make sure you're clear because every publication is going to be different so make sure that you're clear before you you know sign on that you know what your rights are particularly if you're also then expecting to submit the same short story to another competition or another outlet or, yeah. you know, yeah. in another geographic area or something like yeah. that. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the world of blogs. What have we got this week? Well, this week um, I'm loving the fact that people are starting to send me links that they think will be interesting for us to talk about. So thank you very much to Kelly Exeter who sent us the one about stolen time. This particular one is called how to blog like a journalist and it was sent to me by Science Sarah who is one of my um, Twitter personnel and she's I'll put her little handle in the in the show notes um, but she sent me through a post that is about blogging like a journalist and it's written by a guy called uh, Dan Kennedy who seems to blog and write all over the internet from what I can gather and he talks about the fact that there's many social 
you know, there are many platforms available for writers online now. So, if, you know, if you want to practice digital journalism, you can put your work, you know, at the Huffington Post, you can put it at Medium, you can have it at the Hoopla, you can get paid for it in places, you can not get paid for it in places, you know, that's your choice. But what he's saying is that it's really important to content- to maintain your own blog as well. Um, and lots of people would say, why? If I can write for other people who will pay me and I'm going to build a, pl- uh, build a profile that way, why would I not do that? And he goes on to outline that, you know, basically you need a space on the internet that is yours, Mm. that is controlled by you, somewhere to put really good um, content all the time um, that 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 builds your brand for you. Um, But he also talks about the importance of writing journalistic blog posts and how to write them. Um, Now, I found this really, really interesting because coming to blogging as a... um, as a journalist, yeah. I think my approach to blogging when I first began and st- still to this day to a degree is very journalistic. I've always been quite, um, you know, more happy to interview the expert. If, if I don't know, I'll go and ask the question of someone else and put that information on my blog, um, you know, as, a, as an actual article. Yeah. And he talks about how that kind of post can be fantastic for showing off your writing style. It shows that you can do different things at some um, Blogging like a journalist is slightly less formal and more conversational than an actual feature article, Mm. but it still has the bones of a a journalistic approach, which is that you're bringing the audience new information, you're linking to sources of information, you're talking to other people, like you may have quotes from other people, and then you will offer some perspective and analysis on that post. And I think it's really interesting. It's a great way... It's a good post and I think it's worth reading because thinking about ways of diversifying your writing style on your blog, even if you have a personal blog, I think it's worth having a look at how you might start to do different styles of posts to build you know, your online portfolio. And just build your credibility as well yeah. because, I mean, I think that one of the things that he points out is to link to sources and it just drives me batty when I read some blog posts that, that say things like, I read somewhere th- once that one in five Australians are going to die of heart failure and there's no evidence to, <laughs> like, like where, the, where did you read this, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it's just that they vaguely remember this once and it may have actually been one in 50 or one in 100, yeah, who knows, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. You, you immediately, if there is no evidence to back that up or no link to the original source, you kind of immediately think, well, I immediately think um, that there's a slight less of a slight loss of credibility there because yep. you're not really sure if that's correct. Yeah, it's just your opinion. It's, well, it's not your opinion. It could be your bad memory as well. You may have remembered it completely wrong. Very Any, true. Anyway. Very true. <laughs> All right. So, who have you got for our writer in residence this week, Belle? Oh, very, very interesting. I had a great old chat. To Owen Biddle. Now, Owen Biddle wrote Confessions of a Qantas Flight Attendant. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds saucy. It was saucy, I have to say. Um, And he wrote it with Libby Harkness. And we've mentioned Libby before. She also co-wrote Taraya Pitt's, uh, you know, memoir. And um, she's, you know, a a veteran journalist and a number of other books. And she's managed to really capture Owen's voice in this. We talk about, you know, how they collaborated. He says that it was very much a collaboration. So she didn't, you know, ghost write it because 
because her name is on the cover. Um, oh. They both wrote it. But it's his story and his personality really comes out in the stories and the words and, and all of that. And um, Confessions of a Flight Attendant is literally can easily be, des- be described as a rollicking good ride through, you know, what really goes on behind the curtain of that galley and what wow. really goes on with flight attendants. Wow. Um, as you know, when they're off on their jet setting, you know, in their international trips. So um, it was a fascinating interview and a highly entertaining one. So I hope you enjoy it. So thanks for joining us today, Owen. Thank you very much, Valerie. My pleasure. I've been reading your book and I have not been able to put it down, I have to say. Now, if there are some people who have not yet read or bought Confessions of a Qantas Flight Attendant, True Tales and Gossip from the Galley, can you tell us a little bit, just tell the listeners a little bit about what it's about? Well, the book really details, you know, um, over a decade of my flying career, it, it looks at the good, the bad and the ugly and... Um, intertwining the story at the time it was written was um, the juxtaposition of me having a a severe workplace injury and being grounded and coming back to sort of, you know, to work and also um, reminiscing, I guess, about all the the destinations, all the the anecdotal tales and all the celebrities that that I met up in the air over the, the last decade. And so tell us, why did you decide that you wanted to write it? When did it sort of come to you that I might write a memoir? Well, I actually started out in about 2006 or seven, actually just really compiling a lot of photos and a lot of, um, you know, memorabilia. So I had tickets from Venus Williams that were signed and um, Australian Open tickets from Lisa Raymond. Um, I had passenger lists that I'd had all sorts of, different celebrities on and, and I was sort of collaging them into like a coffee table sort of book because every time I went to dinner parties people would just ask me to you know regale stories and to go you know over the most exciting things and I, I wanted to sort of be able to do that through pictures and I realized that that um, there was a lot you know more to the job and a lot more to the actual stories than just those pictures and I when I had my workplace injury in 2011 I actually fell down the stairs of a 747 um, flight simulator trainer at, um, at Mascot and I broke my back in three places and I was paralyzed had to learn to walk again and it was a really harrowing time and, and I so in some ways it was actually very cathartic just for me to I always call the, the very first version that when I handed it into Random House, we look back and we laugh. We call it the um, Confessions of the Satanic Verses because it was, <laughs> it was such a dark, you know, period of when I, you know, when everything's going wrong in your life and my relationship broke up at the time. I oh. ended up being forced into selling my house. And so all these things were going on in my personal life. And I, and then, but what that did was it actually opened up, um, once I'd got that all about, like a good fight, it, it opened up you know, the, the avenue for me to write the really funny light stories that are in there now and really look back at it with the tongue-in-cheek attitude I've tried to approach the book with. Mm. So prior to this, had you done much writing? Uh, look, at university I'd written, um, you know, a couple of stage shows and stuff that, you know, obviously didn't make it to Broadway. And, um, and you know, I'd written, uh, um, I've always been a writer, I've always loved the art of writing and I really love books and it nothing infuriates me more than, you know, seeing these you know, young kids on, you know, Wikipedia or, you know, they don't really appreciate that art of going down to the park with a book and, you know, mm. 
And it's, it's funny, I used to say to some of the young kids that, that came on to flying, you know, they'd say, oh, aren't you going out partying and aren't you doing this? And I'm like, no, I'm going to have a radox bath and take a book, you know. Yes. <laughs> nothing, nothing more, in, you know, indulgent in life. And, um, and that's something I really, you know, wanted to bring back. I, and I'm so happy, you know, when I go to places now and see people reading my book and I really want people buying the, the actual book version because it's just, it's, there's nothing better to me. Mm, absolutely. Now, you said that you wrote the satanic versus version first <laughs> and then was able to come back as you got that I presumably you kind of got that out of your system and then you could write the the lighter very witty very funny hilarious in parts version um how much of the original satanic versus version ended up in the final version very little. It was it was almost completely rewritten. The the, the satanic verses <laughs> manuscript um, was will be like a, um, a collector's item now. <laughs> it, it was um it was it was really just it, it was actually not written with any purpose or structure. It was just me writing about my experiences and a lot of it really centered around my injury and around you know the workers' compensation um, component and you know the sort of like almost like cult-like practices that go on within a corporation, especially, you know, the self-insured corporations. It was So it was a very, very different um, manuscript. All the other funny stories were there, like, you know, the Katy Perry stories and the Lily Allen stories and, you know, the destination stories were still the same. So, of course, they all made it. But even even some countries where I, you know, I didn't particularly like or I didn't, I, I, I thought, you know, that there were a lot of um, human rights issues, I, I was sort of, you know, it was like an Alanis Morissette, song you know it was, it was like <laughs> it was like f- fingers on a chalkboard and um and Alison my publisher was so funny and she's just such a dear dear lady she said to me um yeah so and some very good stuff here she's British and she said but um I think we need to try and really bring out your personality a little bit more and maybe the, the more light side of Owen. <laughs> oh, so tell us, so many people will be interested to know, can you take us through the process by which you got a publisher? Because that is the holy grail to many people. So how did you go from, you know, that cathartic period where you had your injury and all of that to then actually securing a publisher? So I, um, as I said, I started out writing the sort of book and, and collating it together um, in about 2007 and about 2008, 2009, I did the rounds of all the publishing houses and I was really, I wasn't very strategic, to be honest. I, I just went, you know, found publishers that I liked, published, you know, books that I liked and sort of approached them and I was able to meet with um, a couple of them and they they saw glimpses of things but nothing, you know, nothing where they were happy enough to, to put down money or to, you know, to sign contracts or anything like that um, and nothing that they even really wanted to develop at that stage. So, you know, I took their, I really took their advice on board, you know, and I think that's where a lot of people, you know, sort of bow out but I took, I really took their advice on board and, you know, they're the experts in the industry and I I then went home and honed those skills and honed those chapters that they, they said, you know, I needed more or I needed to look at. And then I um, I got, I, I then started, you know, really putting the structure around the book after the Satanic Verses. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd actually met a publisher um, from the UK on a flight to London and, and he had read a couple of sample chapters and really fallen in love with that. And he fell in love with my personality and he said, you know, you know, this could be, you know, such a big thing because, you know, authors are usually so introverted and, mm-hmm. and it's hard to get them out in, you know, out into the public to do the actual other side of things, the social media side of things and the, 
the media side of things. So if we can, you know, garnish this, we're on to a winner. And and then um, I then got on um, through the advice of Random House. I got on Libby Harkness, who's a professional writer. Yes. And I got her to um, to help me just put the, the things into structure and to give me another set of eyes to really look at things that uh, are not obvious to someone who doesn't travel all the time. So even though the stories were interesting, like things like the beginning of the book, like where I just start talking about being a flight attendant, she was more interested in how did you get into be a flight attendant and, and what's the recruitment process and, you know, thousands of people want to be a Qantas flight attendant. So that that gave it another layer of, of oomph. And then through Libby, with Libby, we actually strategically sat down and we um, found the non-fiction um, the non-fiction publishers at the different publishing houses. Mm-hmm. We I then reached out to the UK, to the publishers interested there. And on my sort of last few trips, trips I went to see publishers in the United States as well and um, used my slip time to go and, and, and really market them. Mm-hmm. And we had, we had quite a good list then. And so we sent out to the publishers and six of them came back and pushed the book into a bidding war. But um, it was very much about, you know, having a very confident manuscript or a very confident synopsis at that stage because we only had a few sample chapters and being very strategic in who we approached. Great. And so you worked with Libby Harkness, who is a, a wonderful writer, and she also worked with Taraya Pitt on her book and also the book about the widow. Um, now, tell us about how that works because it's, you know, so many writers write in isolation and, you know, they tap away at their computers. How, how do you do work with Libby? How, what did you, uh, yeah, tell us about just sort of, you know, did you write it first and then she kind of um, reviewed it or did you work on it together? How did it work? Uh, we worked on it completely together. It was, we always said it was like a collaboration, you know, with an actor and, and you know, a producer. She, um, I had the stories there. She bought out, um, so I would give her a story and then she would sit down and we would then take the story because she really wanted to get the essence of my personality. Mm. And, and I mean, as you probably know, one of the hardest things to write is comedy, you know, because it ne- doesn't necessarily translate onto the page. And so she wanted to get, you know, my comedy so we would sit down and we would, each chapter we would go through and, and I would tell the stories as I want them told and then I would take notes, she would take notes and then we would, um, you know, collate, um, collate them together and um, and she was very, very good at picking my voice and getting, you know, bringing out the things in me that, you know, that, that I um, would take for granted or, you know, that she would think might have interest to a wider audience. Mm. And then, um, you know, each few chapters we would then submit that into Random House and then, of course, they decided, you know, we want more of this or we want less of that or more details are needed here and, you know, and so that it really is a collaborative process all the way round, you know, and, and I mean, the book, you know, went, wasn't finished until about five minutes before it went to the <laughs> typeset, you know. So how long did this collaborative process take? So from when you got the book deal, mm-hmm. uh, presumably, till you know, five minutes before it went to print, how long did it take? And and, and how much of your 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 life or, or, you know, your day did it take? It took a year. Um, it took about six months of solid writing and, and storytelling and Libby and I both moved up to Grafton um, where my family were from and rented you know, in a little apartment and, and lived and worked and breathed the, the thing. Um, wow. and we were able, well, we were able to do that because we were able to secure quite a good advance from, you know, the... The um the bidding war, which was you know um, helpful, <laughs> and um and we 
just really, really um, lived and breathed it for about six months. You know, I mean, by the end of it, I was, you know, was so over it. <laughs> but um, and then the next six months, it went into the actual random house um, process. So the the title um, was changed somewhat. Um, they did, you know, the marketing and stuff, which we always collaborated back on. Well, I collaborated back on to decide whether that's what I wanted. I then had to get up other parts. Um, of the, the the business because really it is you know writing is a business if you want to be in this for you know for a profession and so I had to learn things that I'd learned from Katy Perry and and I translated that through to Random House in terms of getting my social media up in in order and getting um, you know the sales all across the world set out because Random House Australia look after Random House Australia and then publishers overseas generally come on as the book, um, you know, starts to sell out and you can, you've got figures to show. But because we knew this book would start hitting very quickly and flight attendants by nature are literally taking the book across the globe, mm. we had to have things set up internationally, you know, and so I had to hire PR people over in the UK and the United States uh, while Random House worked on that simultaneously and also worked on the um, translation rights and into other countries. So, um, yeah, it was a quite a, a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes that you wouldn't necessarily suspect from being an author yeah absolutely how did you <clears throat> juggle everything you know did you did you have other commitments at all did, or did you you know tell us about like when you were in the middle of that full-on six months mm -hmm. did you have a set routine did you and Libby say okay we're going to work from nine till six and we're going to have a one-hour break or did you just sort of let it flow how did it work uh, yeah, we would start every day and we'd, we'd have the, the set chapter we were going to start on and we would, we would you know, work through. Libby would have a, a set of questions. I would, um, you know, start telling the story and then, you know, she'd, um, if she didn't fall asleep, she'd ask me questions. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and then we would actually, you know, have a look at what she did. She would then go back and transcribe it and I would then look at the story and see whether it um, was actually you know, representative of what happened. So... Because sometimes when you're talking, you know, it might be a little bit different to the way it looks when it reads on paper. Um, and so um, we, we, so then we would um, tighten up every every chapter. And, um, and yeah, I would say, look, we probably did about a good six hours solid every day of taping and writing. And then I would work into the night. I was working into the night, setting up the social media part of the book, setting up the marketing, working with that department in, within Random House. Um, so the, the role of an author, you know, I mean, where Libby was doing the writing, my role was really sort of a multi-layered role. Mm. And, and that's something that I think, you know, in the traditional markets with um, with authors and with writers, they haven't had to sort of deal with those frontiers, whereas now with e-books and iBooks and, you know, with our book being so successful in those markets, they've had to be just as equally important because a lot of my um, questions and a lot of my readers are coming from other parts of the world. Mm. And so... Your, something that you said previously piqued my interest. Uh, what uh, was the previous title before you changed it? Uh, it was actually originally called um, Galley Gossip. Um, uh. that, that's what it, it started as and, and that's why it's in the, the sort of subtitle. But um, what we actually found, which is another interesting part of the process, in the, the marketing team when they have their little focus groups and stuff and even within the higher ranks of Random House, a lot of people didn't immediately associate a galley to a plane. No. And so, um, and so that was a bit, you know, problematic. Whereas, if because you only get a couple of seconds if someone's looking at you on the internet or in a bookstore, mm -hmm. and if it, that doesn't sort of relate to them straight away, then you miss that opportunity. And we really wanted people to know this was an airline story from the get go. 
Absolutely. Now, when you read the book, it is full of countless vignettes and little stories and little scenes. They could almost be comedy sketches, um, mm. but there are seemingly thousands of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> how did you remember them? Especially from way back in, you know, 2000 and whatever. Um, how did you did you have to sit there and, you know, reflect for ages and try and pull up the inner recesses of your brain? How did you remember everything? Well, I had a lot of it documented from sort of journals and things that I'd kept. And I also, um, because of, you know, emails that I'd had throughout the company and to, with other people and, you know, thankfully Facebook, I was able to go back and look through different phases. And in fact, everything, you know, when I would, you know, say to Libby, okay, and this happened in 2004, so many times, we would actually, you know, we'd be checking during the research and we'd be like, oh, no, that happened in 2002 or that happened in 2006. So every single thing, um, you know, was, was checked and, and looked at um, to make sure that the chronology, you know, was right. And, um, you know, down to when I met people, down to, you know, when I started at different things to when I lived in different places, um, because, you know, we wanted that, we wanted the story to ring, you know, very true to, to someone who has, you know, is seeing this over a decade, not just over, you know, the space of a few flights. Mm -mm -mm. Now, you've been really strategic, as you've mentioned, in terms of, you know, planning your social media, planning to be ready to uh, take it internationally. Where did you learn all of this? Many authors put their head in the sand and just want to write. Where did you... Um, realised that you needed to be strategic about it and learn what you needed to be strategic about? It was actually through Katy Perry. She, um, I had her on a flight. Um, I've met her a few times actually, but I had her on a flight with Russell Brand and, um, and I knew that I was going, you know, really putting this book together and I asked her, you know, I, you know, we, you know, I sort of broke the ice with her and, and she said she'd come out and I was sort of, you know, putting my collage together and, and looking at, I was actually reading about her and she said, you know, what are you doing, Owen? And I said, oh, I'm reading about you. You know, you kissed a girl and you liked it and you've made $50 million. And I kissed a girl and I didn't like it and I'm making you breakfast. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> she laughed and I said to her, you know, I said, oh, you know, you need to help me, Katie. I'm going to, you know, I'm writing this book and, you know, and it's an airline book. And, and so I told her about it and she was ever so interested. And, you know, we took photos together and she was just, you know, she taught me a lot of things about the industry. She said, you know, you have to know how to connect with the people that are buying your product. You, have, you know, and if they're overseas or if they're, you know, you're overseas and they're in Australia, you need to be able to connect with them. And, and it's very important that you have social media. It's very important that you have an entertainment lawyer. It's very important that you try and get an agent on board. Otherwise, you'll be juggling everything yourself. And unless you're very good at keeping, you know, records and a diary, things just, you know, get, you know, really, really full on very, very quickly. And so I literally, just like I did with, with the publisher's advice, I took her advice because, you know, I mean, obviously you don't get much bigger star than Katy Perry. Yeah. And, um, and so I really heeded the advice that she gave me. And, and so whilst we were, were doing all the creative part of it and, and running that, I was looking at the business side of things and the marketing and the, you know, the social media elements and the contracts and the obligations and the, the worldwide promotion and stuff, um, you know, and I really... You know, look to, to her advice from that. And so do you, did you have an agent for this? Ironically enough, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I wish I had it from the beginning now, but I, but I didn't because it's, in Australia it's really sort of weird. It's, you know, in America it's so easy to get an agent if you're American, but um, uh, in Australia it's, they're a lot more reluctant to invest in you if they don't have facts and figures to go by. Now that I've just put out the book, I've had about 50 agents contact me, you know. <laughs> but, um, 
but when I really wanted an agent, it was very difficult to to get one on. Um, and I mean, just after the book was you know about to come out, I was able to get Rick Raftus um, involved, which was you know which has been great, and he's got a lot of experience. But at the, the very beginning, Libby and I were sort of um, you know negotiating with the publishing houses on our own, and and we were very lucky that you know that through my uh, through her connections and through my work you know in um, meeting publishers and going around those rounds that we were able to push it into a bidding war. And Rick's a great choice because he has so many connections in the film industry because I can totally see this as a movie. <laughs> we've already been approached, you know, by some film companies and, and um, we're very, very excited about that. I mean, the book, I wanted it to open up and read like a movie. I wanted it to be yeah. really easy for people to imagine, you know, to be caught into the um, imagination of the book and the imagery. And, and, of course, you know, that then lends itself to, you know, naturally progressing into a, a film or into um, a TV series. And so that, but that was a deliberate, um, you know, uh, structure that we, we set out as well because it's, it's something that, you know, nowadays you just can't sort of avoid. I mean, it's, it, 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 the, the movies are often a, um, just the next, you know, the next existential bit of, of the book. Yeah, I love how strategic you've been with this. So tell us what's next for you. Obviously, you know, the book is done and um, you, 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 uh, you're promoting it, but what's, I'm sure you've got something planned. So please share that with us. <laughs> okay, so we are going to uh, New York on the 17th um, with the book and we've been had some really, really great offers for some shows and stuff over there where then I'm then going to the United Kingdom with the book in early August. And um, I'm then coming back, so from mid-August to late August, I'm just going to sit down and look at all the options that we've got and look at, um, you know, what I really want to achieve out of out of this. And um, because one of the things that's important to me is not just taking the, the largest offer, but having some level of creative control and, um, and having, if it does turn into a movie, having that done, you know, in the way that, you know, with the authenticity that I want it to be done. Um, and... Um, and I won't know that until I've actually sat down with some of the producers in America and the United Kingdom. And then I'm later in the year, um, I am looking at doing a show called So You Want to Be an uh, So You Want to Be an Author. <laughs> Funnily enough, it's so identical. <laughs> and I'm hoping to do that with Churia Pitt. And we're looking at just you know all the the sort of the fun things and the the things that you don't know about being a first time author. Oh wow! And so obviously she's got her story, and it'll be coming in. You know. Everyone will have the tissues out crying and then I'll come in and tell my story and everyone will hopefully have the tissues out crying for a different reason. And, um, and then, you know, and, and we'll, um, and from that we are looking at maybe, you know, developing it into a, a television sort of show, but we wanted to just do a sort of, you know, three-part um, stage show to, to, you know, to show people out there because we've had, I've had so many emails from people saying, I want to become an author or, you know, I, I don't know, I'm stuck in my writing or I don't know if I'm better as an editor and, and so I really wanted to reach out to those people because I know what it's like to be there myself, of course. Mm. And, um, and, you know, and I thought, you know, around Sydney Uni and around Newtown and, and um, you know, around UTS, there in, in, in Sydney particularly, there are just, you know, so many people in the parks reading and enjoying that art. And I really wanted to bring that back into fashion. I really want people out reading again and going and supporting, you know, the local bookstore. I mean, it's just nothing, you know, you know better, I think. Yeah, I love it. So, are you? Have you got any thoughts about your next book? I do have some thoughts about my next book, and we're we're discussing that at the moment. So, um, I can't really tell you what <laughs> what it is, but you know, I think it'll be something along the same lines of the confession series. 
So do you think it will be, um, what you can probably tell me is whether it's going to be memoir or non-fiction or fiction or, you know, that sort of thing? Uh, it will probably, well, um, it will probably be non-fiction um, and probably another element of my life will probably be looking at um, because, funnily enough, my life seems to be, be able to be categorised into so many different layers and people yes. are saying, oh, we'd like you to write something about that or we'd like to hear about that. or And um, and the thing is as well, um, I've had some interest from different um, places about being more specific about locations and more specific about, you know, different um, elements of the book that we talked about. Um, and I also, you know, I'm also still recovering from my surgeries. You know, I've, I've just had my last spinal surgery in March, so that is um, is still taking its toll. And um, I, I mean, my, my goal, my end goal is to be, you know, Australia's next Graham Norton. You know, I want to be taking those those conversations with Katy Perry and Lily Allen and Russell Brand and um, whatnot onto the couch in, in Australia. And, and we're, we're looking, you know, some people have, have reached out to me about that. So that's something that I'm really aiming towards doing as well. I love it. And um, finally, for some of the listeners who are um, thinking, you know, I'd really love to do that. I, I'd, I'd love to get a deal with a publisher and write my memoir or a book. What's your advice to them? Well, my advice is that you go on Twitter and contact me at Owen Bedell and, um, and or reach out to me on Facebook. I've got a professional and a, a friends page, which is just Owen Bedell, um, and I'll help, you know, help you as much as I can. But I think that the thing is, is that a lot of people say they're writing a book and what they mean is they've got an idea for a book. Yep. So you're having the idea is like literally 1% of the battery. You have to then sit down and sit down and really think, how is this book going to unfold for the reader? And, and then so just literally chapter one, what is it? You know, chapter two, what is it? Chapter three, what is it? And I mean, obviously, you know, the end story, but how is the book actually going to unfold? And then once you've got that, then I would say, have a look at who is my audience, who wants to read this, and then is this simple enough? So I think if you stick to the, the, the very basics of things like is this simple enough, can other people, you know, engage with this? And the way that you will find that is not by hanging around with your friends, I don't think, and not by um, hanging around people that are in your industry or but going out into places that you wouldn't normally go, like, you know, maybe go out, you know, I mean, for me going into straight um, bars or going to um, bookstores or going, you know, um, I went, you know, hiking with a, a group of, of ladies one day and, and, you know, and I was telling them about the book and reading them snippets and they were like, oh, I'd love to hear more about this or, you know, tell me more about that. And just mm -hmm. to, to really widen your audience because, I mean, there's a lot of talent out there and there really are people with some great Australian stories. Fantastic. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Owen. It's an awesome read and um, can't wait for the next one. Oh, thank you so much. It's so lovely to talk to you. There you go, Owen Beryl. Well, what a fantastic interview. How entertaining. He was entertaining. And, you know, it's it's one of those books that you can easily read, you know, on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, when you just don't want to think too hard because it's just full of story after story after story. Fantastic. So our um, web 
pick for the week or app pick for the week is actually something I've been using for ages and I can't believe that I haven't mentioned it till now. It's called Text Expander. Now, if you've got a Mac, you can use Text Expander, but before when I, you know, use Windows versions, I use Active Words. Right. So it's they're two different things but they do the same thing. And basically they're like shortcuts. So for example, if you find that you're always writing the same thing in email back to somebody, like perhaps Perhaps, oh, you know, um, this is how you approach an editor or whatever. And if you're always writing the same thing, instead of reinventing the wheel every time and typing out all of those paragraphs, you can put those paragraphs in the app and you can assign a shortcut to it. So maybe the shortcut would be editor. But what I typically do is put two E's at the front because otherwise every time you type the word editor, it's going to paste this in there. So I put E-E-D-I-T-O-R. You can do it however way you want, but that's my little technique. And every time I put E-E, you know, D-I-T-O-R, instead of writing that, it pastes those three paragraphs in my email or my Word document or my blog post or whatever. Wow. If if there's something you use a lot, like maybe some kind of, you know, um, line at the end of your blog post about signing up to your newsletter or something, then you can use Text Expander to to do that. Well, that's a time-saving thing. Very time-saving, particularly, I think, when you're doing emails and you're doing anything that's um, a bit repetitious, uh, very handy. I started off with Active Words with Windows and then discovered Text Expander for Mac, and I love them. I use them daily, you know, multiple times a day. You are such a tech girl, aren't you? You love a little bit of a handy. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I'm a bit, you know, sometimes it's to my detriment because sometimes I can spend a long time working out what could have taken me three minutes. Right. Um, But if it works and I end up using it for years, it's definitely worth it. Worth it, for sure. What's our working writer's tip this week? Well, um, it's a question that I do get asked quite regularly and it's around, it regards quotes. Um, Obviously, a quote is where you are inserting someone's actual words into the story. And the question is, can I change a quote? Can I condense it? Feature articles. Sorry, for feature writing, yes. Can I condense it? Can I change a word that is obviously incorrect? Can I, you know, uh, you know, what basically what can I do to a quote? So I guess I'm going to ask you, Val, Mm -hmm. can I change a quote? Um, it's kind of yes and no, and let me, you know, don't take mm. that out of context. No, <laughs> I won't. Don't take yes that, that quote out of context. So yes and no in that if they are saying lots of ums, ah, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, and lots of ands and ahs and all that sort of stuff, yes, I think it's perfectly okay to take out ah, uh, um, uh, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but unless your point is to describe the fact that they use um, uh, uh, and you know, a yeah. lot. Yeah. But that's usually not the point. No. So you certainly take those things out just to make it less jarring for the reader and to make it flow more. Yeah. But you cannot change the words at, or change the meaning at no. all. If they've some, you know, if they've structured a sentence in a really clumsy way, um, then you paraphrase it. So yes. you, you take it out of the quote marks yep. and you paraphrase it yep. and, and that's how you, you yep. know, um, essentially convey what they've said. You can say, John said he went to the shop instead of John said 
I went to the shop or shop, I went. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's Yoda. Because he's Yoda, <laughs> yes. So, so that's why I say yes and no. And if, you know, in, in some cases, um, if a word is obviously incorrect and there's you for some reason you can't paraphrase it, then there is that uh, technique which many newspapers use. Let's say, you know, you've got someone who says, and then he come up to me and asked me to dance. Well, obviously that person meant to say, and then he came up to me and asked me to dance. Yeah. So you would write it if you used direct quotes and then he come and then you would put the square brackets, sick, S yep. for Sam, I see, close square brackets, up to me and ask me to dance. And sick basically means, yes, we acknowledge that this is actually the wrong word that the person has used, but we're quoting them directly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's their fault, not ours. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How Look, about you? Th- what do you think? Well, I think the other thing that you can do if you're like, if you're writing a, if I'm writing a feature article and I have a quote that I think is clumsy, but I like, I want to use it, the, I want the meaning. I will sometimes go back to the person yes. and say to them, "Is it okay if I, you know, quote you as this mm. and put the quote as I intend to use it mm. and get their permission?" And yes. then I will use it like that. Um, I, I think that that's always a good idea. And the other thing I do as I'm actually doing the interview, if I find that the quote is going, because a long rambling quote can be just so incredibly difficult to read through. Like mm. it's it's a thing. I will sometimes say to them, so is what you mean X yes. and have them Re- have them say yes what I mean is blah 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 so get them to actually you you really need to keep control of the interview to do that yeah. you have to be listening very very hard but it's really worth saying so is what you're trying to say x y and z and if they say yes what I'm trying to say is x y and z then I put it that's the quote as far as I'm concerned Right, yes. So I would do that. But it's always, I would not change a quote without ever, I would not change a quote and change the meaning and I would never do it without actually going back to the person first. Yes, and saying to them, go back to the person. Go back to the person. People would rather you check than get it wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing I would like to say about that is if you're going to use quotes, then please use, learn how to use quotation marks correctly. Um, oh. I read a lot of... I read a lot of raw copy and I can honestly say that I reckon eight out of ten people don't know where to put yep. the comma when it comes to a quotation mark Drive or a full stop. And it's very it, – it's it's a really – like it's a small thing but it really is um, – it. If, if you're trying to be a professional freelance writer, yep. then you need to get it right. Exactly. Um, and it's it's not that difficult. And like I love Grammar Girl. She has the quick and dirty tips for um, grammar. If you put in Grammar Girl quote marks, she will give you a three-paragraph, very pre- precise, you know, overview on exactly how to use your quote marks and where to put them. Yeah. Um, so really check it. Make sure you're getting it right. And I, I think it's obviously something that – we might need to address in schools because it's, <laughs> it's, exactly. it's not really, so it's a, there's a failing there somewhere, that's for sure. And if you do want to be a professional freelance writer or any kind of writer, please don't say, oh, oh I don't know, that's what editors are for. Oh, I don't no. do that. I hear that sometimes no. and I go, okay, well, that's one sure way of not succeeding or giving people or, you know, editors a bad impression. You won't get the your, job. If you send in a submission like that, that's that you know like it yes 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 it that's what editors that's what sub editors are for and stuff like that but if you if you can't 
show them that you can put a comma in in the right place, then it yep. does. It gives a bad first impression, and the last thing you want to give is a bad first impression. Yep. So you'll get the first job, but you won't get the second job. Yeah, that's right. Or you're, if you you think that your stuff is that good because maybe you're a specialist in a particular area and not many people write about your topic, then sure, people might still go might might still use you, but they're going to say, trust me, this is what they say to other editors. Oh, yeah, she's a really good specialist in that topic, but gee, her grammar is terrible. Mm. So don't use her on the important things. Yeah, because it's more work for them too. You have to remember that if it's going to create more work in-house, then they are going to be less likely to use you. Exactly. And if you want some tips, um, do subscribe to our newsletters. Oh, yes. Um, Because apart from Grammar Girl, Alison has a great newsletter um, and also the Australian Writers' Centre has a great weekly newsletter full of all sorts of really useful and practical, and key word being practical, uh, writing tips. So where can they subscribe to your newsletter, Al? You can subscribe to my newsletter at alisontate.com. And the Writer Centre is at writercentre.com.au. So this brings us to the end of our podcast. It does. If you have How question, did we get here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have a question you'd like us to answer, email us podcast at writerscentre.com.au and we would love to include it as our working writer's tip. And um, But, you know, it's time to wind up. So oh. I'm very sad. I'm what, sad. What are you going to be up to in the coming week until we next speak? Well, you know, I'll be doing what I do, which is apparently just writing. I, honestly, I feel like I'm tied to my chair at the moment and I am having to remind myself to get up and walk around. So fortunately, I have a Fitbit that tells me how many steps I'm not doing every day, which is awesome. Ah, yes. Yes. I had one of those. Yes. And you, what are you up to this week? Um, I will, apart from the fact that I'm in love with Tom Hanks's new <laughs> iPad app, I'm still eyeing off that retro typewriter that I've been texting the typewriter lady about. So I shall let you know if I end up buying it. Fantastic. I look forward to hearing about it. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.